Andrews is like coming home to me. It's like uh, coming home. I, I, you know, just have spent so much time on this campus through the years, even before I was a student here, would uh, come here often, uh, uh, several degrees. And uh, later on, it was my privilege to serve for over nine years on the board of trustees. And uh, it's just like coming home. And it's always nice to come home in the spring and not in the winter. Do you all have the mission statement of Andrews University memorized? Just for those of you who haven't memorized it, let me read it to you. Andrews University, a distinctive Seventh-day Adventist institution, transforms its students by educating them to seek knowledge and affirm faith in order to change the world. You probably know the part about uh, seeking knowledge, affirming faith, and changing the world. You know, um, the, to the extent that you leave here with your faith affirmed and ready to change the world for good, Andrews University will have accomplished its mission. It's a, a challenging thing to change the world. When I was an intern, a ministerial intern, there were 12 ministerial interns in our conference. And uh, we would get together from time to time and uh, have in-services for the interns. And one of them was on preaching, and we all had to prepare a sermon and, and preach it to our fellow interns. And I, I remember my sermon a little bit. But the part that I do remember was talking about the 12 of us. I said, you know, there were another 12 at one time years and years ago, and they went out and they turned the world upside down. And I said, we are 12, and we can go out, and we can turn the world upside down for Christ. Um, I don't know that the world knows very much about any one of the 12 of us, but we did go out and in our own ways, in our own places, on the platforms that we had, we, I hope, made some impact for the kingdom of God. And you're challenged with that too through the, through the um, mission statement that I just read to you. I want to talk to you a little bit today about God reaching out to us. Here, uh, last, last year, I had the privilege, for the first time, of visiting Rome. And as part of my trip there, I went one afternoon into the Sistine Chapel. Have you been to the Sistine Chapel? It's, it's an amazing place, not just because of the art, but because of the people. You're jam-packed into this relatively small space, and you're cycled through there. And, and as you sit, as you stand in that place, you can look up and see that amazing painting on the, on the ceiling. And that's what everybody was doing when I was in there. Everybody was staring up at that at the painting on the ceiling, and, and you could hear the oohs and the ahs and, and people exclaiming to each other, and the noise would grow, the din would build, until finally there was this voice that seemed to be from heaven, a deep, resonant voice played loudly over a PA system. It would say, silence, silence. That's my takeaway from the Sistine Chapel. 
In the introduction to his book, God is Closer Than You Think, John Ortberg describes his own visit to the Sistine Chapel with his wife the first year they were married. He saw the painting of God and Adam on the ceiling, and he writes this, If you look carefully at the painting, you notice that the figure of God is extended toward the man with great vigor. He twists his body to move it as close to the man as possible. His head is turned toward the man, and his gaze is fixed on him. God's arm is stretched out, his index finger extended straight forward, every muscle taut. This God is rushing toward Adam on a cloud. It's as if even in the midst of the splendor of all creation, God's entire being is wrapped up in his impatient desire to close the gap between himself and this man. He can't wait. His hand comes within a hair's breadth of the man's hand. Apparently, one of the messages that Michelangelo wanted to reach, wanted to convey is God's implacable determination to reach out and be with the person he has created. But having come that close, he allows just a little space so that Adam can choose, and he waits for Adam's move. Today I want to look at a parable of Jesus that makes the same point that Michelangelo was making in his painting. It's a story about family. It's a story about a dysfunctional family. One of my favorite cartoons of all time. I love this cartoon. It's a two-panel cartoon. In the first cartoon, it shows a stage. It's all prepared. There are flowers. The, The podium is in place. And on the back wall is a huge banner that reads, Welcome to the Second Annual Convention of Children of Non-Dysfunctional Families. And the second panel of the cartoon, it, it pans out, it zooms out, and you, you see the entire convention hall, and there are two people sitting in it. The truth is that every one of us sitting here is part of a dysfunctional family, the human race. When Adam and Eve made their decision in the garden, it cast, it cast this entire human race into a dysfunction. And I want to talk to you a little bit about a home that was dysfunctional. Even in dysfunctional homes, though I want to make this point first, even in dysfunctional homes, there still is an attraction in most cases. I I recognize not in every case, but in most cases, even in families that aren't perfect, there's this this thing that draws you home. We feel some some comfort at home. Uh, On... uh, January 17, 1991, I was on an airplane from Chicago to San Diego, and I got off at the other end, and I was waiting at the carousel for my bag, and a woman came up to a a man who had been on the flight with me, and she said, did you hear? And he said, hear what? And she said, while you were flying here, we went to war. (laughs) It was the opening of the Gulf War. And I want to tell you, it took everything within me not to turn around, buy a ticket, get on a plane, and go back home. Because we didn't know what was going to happen in that war. We didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't know how deep we were going to get into it. I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to be home at a time of crisis. Home, home, even dysfunctional homes sometimes can draw us 
pull us back. And I want to talk today about a parable of Jesus, an old parable, a well-known, often preached on parable of Jesus, the parable of the lost son. It's found in Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to read the first part there. It says, in, beginning in verse 11, Then he said, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a famine in the land, and he began to be in want. The son, this son, this son... There were two sons. The elder son, he was, he was okay. He, would, uh, he, he did everything right. He was responsible. He was hardworking. He was thrifty. He was always helping around the place. He showed great respect for his father. Everything pointed to the fact that he must be a perfect son. And then there was this uh, younger son. And you know the story. He worked around the place. Uh, couldn't be, if it couldn't be avoided, money burned a hole in his pocket. He had an eye for the girls. When he showed up, the party began. He was clever and bright, and lots of people liked him. But he was so irresponsible. He was just not helpful around the, the farm where they lived. The elder brother begins to resent the pain his brother has caused the family. He saw what it did to his dad to, to see this, this brother of his who was just, he was so immature, he was such an ingrate, and he, and he hated it. It drove him crazy, and he tried to straighten out his younger brother. You know, siblings do that sometimes. Um, when our children were small, uh, Michael was four or six, I think, at this point, and Kristen was two. We were living on the East Coast where we were pastoring a church, uh, and uh, we were living in a three-level townhouse. One day, my wife was up in the upper level of the townhouse, and and the kids were in the family room in the lower level, and she heard this blood-curdling scream come from from the family room, and she raced down two flights of stairs and quickly discovered that nobody was seriously injured, but, but Kristen was just sobbing and hurt and angry, and then... Pat turned and looked at Michael, who was holding a toy that obviously had shortly before that been in in the possession of his sister. And that was the cause of the screaming. And so Pat says to Michael, she says, Michael, what, what, what have you done? And Michael, thinking fast, because, you know, he had to come up with some way of, of defending his action, he said, oh, I'm, I'm teaching Chrissy how to share. That's, a, that's siblings, you know, always trying to be helpful with their, with their fellow siblings. And that's the, what was going on with this older son. The, the, the things got worse and worse. The father worried terribly about the conflict between his sons. He worried terribly about the son who was, who was just making a wreck of his life. And the younger son, for his part, resented both his brother and his father for always trying to meddle in his life. And one day he hits upon a plan. Why not suggest to dad, just give me my inheritance now, and I'll go and get out of your hair. I'll get out of the way. Everybody can be happy then. And so he goes and makes the proposal to his father and is surprised that his father accepts the proposal. Father, maybe he was thinking, he just needs some space. Maybe he just needs to learn for himself. 
But at any rate, soon the day came for the young man to leave. And in my mind's eye, in my mind's eye, this dad walks his son out to the road. Son, he says, you're always welcome here. Don't forget who you are. Stay in touch. And the son says, sure, Dad, you bet. No problem, I'll be in touch. And off he goes. If he had looked back at that moment, he would have seen an old man stooped over in grief. Tears running down his cheek, spilling onto the dusty road. The son said, give me, give me selfishly disregarding his father. He just wanted what he thought was he had coming to him, one-third of his father's estate. And by rights, the estate wasn't even supposed to be settled until after the father's death. But here he had it, and off he goes. Give me, the son said. And you know the story. He travels to a far country. It's been told so often. He stops at an inn. He makes friends, and the party begins And everybody wants to gather around this young man and spend his money. Give me, he said. This this give me attitude isn't just something from ancient times. It's the norm of the day in which we live. People frantically trying to get in as much living as they can before they die. Uh, You know, YOLO, you only live once, go for it. When I was young, it was characterized by a bumper sticker that you'd often see on pickups that said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. There's within our society an insatiable appetite for the new, the exotic. The younger son of this parable is, in a very real sense, an apt symbolic figure of 21st century Western humanity. Ever searching for happiness, but never quite finding it. Always seeking the next thrill, but never satisfied. But stop. That's not the point of this story. The narrative goes on. Verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, heaven, and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. One day the son wakes up, the money is all gone, and he has to go out and do something he never thought he would ever have to do, look for a job. But there was a famine and a recession in the land, and so as he would go from place to place, he would get hit up with things like, I'm sorry, but we've been letting workers go. Business is slow just now. We, we don't really need you. And, and, of course, the classic, do you have any experience? With this drought, we don't even know if we'll bring in a crop this year. But finally, he does land a job, and that's feeding pigs on a pig farm. Nice job. 
for a good Jewish boy. Have you smelled pig manure? I love to pick blueberries. I've done it all my life. And uh, there was a farm in, near my in-law's home in, uh, uh, near Kalamazoo, and I used to go there and pick every year. They won't let you pickers in anymore. But uh, we'd pick there every year for decades. And it was wonderful. So one Sunday morning, I went out there bright and early, grabbed a bunch of buckets, and I went out into the blueberry patch to begin picking. I was going to pick for hours. And I got out there, and after about five minutes, I had had enough. And I took my pails, and I went back and turned them back in, and I said, what is that smell out there? And they said, well, we tried something new this year. We fertilized with pig manure, and it rained last night. Pig manure is the worst. And here is this, here is this good Jewish boy who's gone out to make his mark on the world. He was one of the cool kids. He left home because he wanted to lead a more glamorous and sophisticated life. He had launched off because he knew more about living than his father did. And now reality hits as he sits in the muck wishing that he could eat pig food. There in the stench and filth of that place, it all comes finally home to him. What a fool he has been. What a waste he has made of his life. What a mess he has created for himself. And there in this putrid muck, he breaks down and cries. But then a marvelous thing happens. The Bible says he came to himself. He came to himself. One commentator says the striking expression, this striking expression puts the state of rebellion against God as a kind of madness. It's a wonderful stroke of art to represent the beginning of repentance as the return of a sound consciousness. Suddenly there comes ringing in his ears those final words, those parting words of his father, son, You are always welcome here. Keep in touch. But think about it. Would you want your family to know the poverty that you had sunk to? Would you want your family to know that you slept with pigs last night? You who set off to conquer the world? But he can't escape those words ringing in his ears. Son... You're always welcome here. And there in the muck, in the stench, and amidst the grunting of the hogs, he makes a decision. He will go home. He will swallow his pride. He will admit his mistake and ask his dad for a job. It's got to be better than feeding pigs. And he sets out for home. We don't really have to look very far around us today to find modern-day prodigal sons and daughters. In a very real sense, there's an epidemic for all sorts of reasons, some internal to the person, some external to their environment. But young men and women running away from their problems real or perceived at home, thinking there's got to be something better out there. 
finding, though, themselves living lives of bare subsistence, ending up in all sorts of bad places. Many good boys and girls from good all-American families. How do I know? <laughs> Same way you do. I've, I've seen them. I've talked with them. I know them. A few years ago, I did a series of meetings in a little town in central Illinois, a farming community, kind of the all-American place. Norman Rockwell would have loved it. I, as I would travel from the motel to the church each evening and then later at night going back to my hotel, I saw a group of teenagers out on the street. Same ones, every day, same place, every day. And there was a lot of stuff around them, including they had a grill. And I asked people in town, I said, what's the deal? It's a small town, everybody knows everybody's business. I said, what's the deal with, with all of the kids downtown? And they said, they're homeless. They're homeless. They've left home or their parents have kicked them out and they're living on the street. Small town USA. So one day, a few days later, I was on Sabbath, we were having lunch in the fellowship hall and I looked out the window just in time to see a balloon float by the windows of the fellowship hall. And, and I'm a very curious person, so I got up and I went outside and all the little kids followed behind me because they were curious too. And uh, we went chasing after the balloon. Finally, we caught it, grabbed it, had a string hanging off from it. And on the string was a note, and I opened up the note. And it was memories of a young man who had committed suicide the year before. There in the town, one of the high school students. And uh, his friends had put these, these balloons all over town with little memories of, of their friend. I took it inside and I was showing it around in the fellowship hall and a lady who was visiting there that day, she said, may I see it? And I handed it to her and she, she read it and she said, may I have this? And I said, well, sure, yeah, that's fine. She says, this was a friend of my daughter's. And she took it. I was intrigued by that interaction and so that week I went to visit her at her home and she shared with me that this young man was not alone but that there had been five high school students in this little all-American town, small farming community in central Illinois, five students within the last year in that high school had committed suicide. Hopelessness. But I want to tell you that hopelessness and the things that come out of it, all of those situations, they're not restricted to young people. I see it in people of all ages. Because in a larger sense, the son of this story represents all the sons and daughters of God of all time, who in rejecting the wisdom of the Heavenly Father have chosen to live their own lives apart from Him the way we see fit. But as in the story of the prodigal son, eventually one runs squarely into the facts that life without God is hollow and empty and unsatisfying at best. And at worst, it makes the pig pen of the prodigal look good. 
Tragically, today, city streets are littered with what society treats as human garbage, the drunks, the addicts, the insane. We don't know their background. We don't know their situation. But their lives aren't working out. These are people who had real lives and real families at one time. Prisons are filled with criminals. Shelters are filled with battered women and children. Psychiatrist's offices are filled with people whose hearts are failing them with fear. All of this because humanity had a better plan than our Heavenly Father. But amidst all of the muck and all of the stench that one encounters if one looks, there are people today who, like the prodigal, are coming to themselves and recognizing that they want to go home. They awake to the reality that their lives are not good. They seek to go home. And that's an important point. But it's not the point of the story. It's not the point of the story. So let's go back to the narrative. Verse 20. And he arose, the prodigal, He arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. He heads home, trudges along mile after mile, at one time thinking of his shame and also hoping against all hope that his father will let him come to work for him. At least he'll have shelter. At least he'll have a decent meal. He comes to his road, the road that leads by his father's house. It's, it's a land of opportunity to him now. It's, it's all silos and corn cribs and tractors and the good life. As he comes down that road. He's walking slowly, weak with hunger, diseased from his lifestyle. He sees off in the distance a lone figure, and it's his father. Little does he know that ever since he left, his father has looked for excuses to break away from work, to to slip out to the road to look and see if maybe this would be the day that his son is coming home. The farmhands have been mystified by all of this. They've noticed it too, day after day, week after week, month after, even year after year. This, this man going out to look to see if his lost son might be coming home today. And, and they've marveled at that. This son was a rotten son. He had cared only about himself. He had taken the money and r- run away. And he had never even bothered to send a message back home. They marveled. But this day, the father's searching is rewarded. He sees off in the distance this staggering figure coming down the road. As he grows near, he sees that this skin and bones figure truly is his son. And then the Bible says those wonderful words, the father saw him and had compassion and ran. Can you imagine this this wealthy, dignified, prominent man in the community 
running down the road, this old man running as fast as his legs can carry him, going to the sun and coming to the sun. He throws his arms around him. The Bible says that he smothered his son with kisses. No matter the torn and filthy rags, no matter the dried pig manure, no matter the dirty and matted hair, no matter whatever disease this son is born, this is his boy and he's come home. He's longed to see him, he's missed him, and now he's here. Servants bring the best robe. Servants put a new family ring on his hand. Servants prepare a feast. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's a hallelujah moment. The son sitting in the feast. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? As he's sitting there, he thinks to himself, if only I had known. If only I'd understood, I would have come home so much sooner. And now we come to the point of the story. It is true that the son wasted his money, wasted the father's money, but that's never been the point of this story. The son was ungrateful, it's clear to see, but that's not the point of the story. The son repented, and that's important, but it's not the point of the story. The son was forgiven, but even that's not the point of this story. The point of the story is about the father. The point is that the father missed the son. The father loved the son. The father would do anything to restore the son to the family, and ultimately the father had his son back home again. We live in a world that is desperate to know that God is love. He is not what insurance companies refer to him as, the cause of disasters. People need to know that God is not just waiting for them. He's already working to bring them back to him. He's stretching towards them, as Michelangelo's picture portrayed. People need to know that God misses them. People need to know that God loves homecoming celebrations. People need to know that the Father accepts them just the way they are, covered with the filth of rebellion, but he doesn't leave them there. He covers them with the best robe of all, the robe of Christ's righteousness. And they are changed. Jesus needs to know, people need to know that even now he's planning the greatest homecoming of all time when he'll welcome home his sons and daughters into his eternal home. The message of Michelangelo's painting and the message of the parable of the lost son is the same. God wants to be with us. There's no greater evidence of this than the greatest reach down of all time, the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Father wants his children home so badly, he sent his Son into this world. If you students, graduates, if you you leave Andrews University without a relationship with Jesus and the joy and the peace and the hope that that brings, we will not have been successful in our mission. You will not have wasted your money. You still got a good education. You'll go out and do great in professions, but you will 
not have achieved our greatest dream for you, and that is a personal one-on-one walk with Jesus Christ. My wish for you is that the message will be indelibly imprinted, even scrubbed into your souls, that God loves you and that his door is always open no matter what. As you go out to change the world, go with the certainty that what the world needs more than anything is the hope that comes from this story, that God is love and he misses his children. And if we've done our job right in the operation of this university, you will leave here as ready purveyors of that message that God loves and misses his children. As you go out of this place, having sought knowledge, having affirmed your faith, I challenge you to change your world. It may be in some small corner or it may be on a global stage, but change your world. Be a beacon of hope. Show compassion to a compassionless world. Reflect the unconditional love of God. Be faithful to your commitment to Christ. Be a servant leader as he was. May your faith build hope wherever you go. I close with this story. We took a group of our pastors from Illinois to Israel a number of years back, quite a few years ago now. There are several places uh, around Jerusalem where they claim that Jesus was buried. Um, My favorite one is the garden tomb. It's probably not the place where Jesus was buried, but it most closely resembles the pictures in Uncle Arthur's Bible story books, which that was really important to me. You know, the garden all around, there's a stone to roll in front, and it's a beautiful setting. And groups that go to visit there can uh, reserve areas of the garden around the tomb where you can hold a communion service with your group. And so uh, one Sabbath, we were there at the tomb, and after we visited the tomb, we went to a place that we had reserved, and we took communion together, had the Lord's Supper the bread and the wine. By the way, somebody forgot to send the message that it was supposed to be grape juice instead of wine. We discovered that after we took our quick gulp. (laughs) Confession. Um, But when we were done with the communion service, we as the disciples sang a song. And the song that we chose to sing was, We Have This Hope doesn't get sung quite as much these days as it used to, but that this, I call it the international anthem of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's been translated into so many languages around the world. We have this hope. We sang the song with gusto, and when we were done, we started to make our way to the gate to get back on our bus, and as we were walking along the path, a group came up to us, and they said, was that you singing that song? And we said, yeah, that was us singing that song. And they said, are you Seventh-day Adventists? And we said, yeah, we're Seventh-day Adventists. They said, so are we. We're from Brazil. (laughs) 
And so we walked along together, and as we were walking along together, another group came up to us, and they said, was that you singing that song? We said, yeah, that was us. And, and they said, are you Seventh-day Adventists? Yeah, we're Seventh-day Adventists. And they said, so are we. We're from Great Britain. And so these three groups melted into one from Brazil and the United States and from Great Britain. We, we marched along towards the gate, bound, bound together by the hope that comes in knowing the love of God. I told that story one time. A lady came up to me afterward and she says, you know, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. And, uh, you know, I have hope too. (laughs) And I said, sister, I know you do. I know you do. But we've got the song. And my challenge to you is join hands with people of faith wherever you go and lift up Jesus Christ as a demonstration of the great love of the Father and give people the hope that they need in a world that is dying. It's dying for a message of hope. May God bless you as you leave this place.